Uh, good afternoon. I'm Narelle Hooper. I'm the chair for the next session. And our topic is the nanny state. And I don't know about you, but I was at the beach last week and I, by the time I saw the signs, you know, what, beware of slippery rocks, currents, this, that, I was about to turn and run. That's just a small example. We're in an era where we have things like people talking about fat taxes and sugar taxes and calorie counters and they've been trying to reduce the super size me sodas in New York and things like that. So our next guest uh, this afternoon, Chris Berg, has a prickly topic to discuss. If we don't think our fellow citizens are capable of making the right choice, choices about what we eat and drink, how on earth are they able to vote? Discuss. And I'm sure you're all going to be asking questions towards the end of this. Now, Chris is a senior fellow at the Institute for Public Affairs, where he specialises in civil liberties, the political economy of regulation, and he's also a columnist on the drum on the ABC. He's written a book, uh, Liberty, Equality and Democracy. He'll be doing some uh, book signings afterwards, after we leave here. And he tells me he's a bit of a, um, a swat. He's just about finished his doctorate. Please put your hands together and welcome Chris Berg. Thanks. Just about finished my doctorate, all right. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, I flew up this morning from Melbourne um, uh, and I'm flying back tonight, so it's a really in and out, but it's, it's very kind um, that you've all come to hear about this provocative topic. The great American writer H.L. Mencken thought that Australia's best contribution to the English language was the word wowser. Now, unfortunately for us, the origins of the word wowser are very obscure. At the turn of the 20th century, some self-identified wowsers said that it stood for, quote, we only want social evils remedied. Now, back then, the wowsers were concerned about the social evils of drinking, gambling, the theatre, dancing, mixed-sex bathing, and cremation. I'm not sure why either. Today's wowsers, or today's nanny staters, are concerned about the health consequences of drinking, gambling, drug-taking, overeating, advertising, going out too late, and visiting naughty websites. Australia is a nanny state. It always has been. We're one of the richest countries in the world, but we're also one of the most paternalistic towards our own citizens. Australian councils use their powers of planning to ban trans fats from restaurants. Australia was the first in the world to strip colours and logos from tobacco products. Under the banner of income management, the Australian government controls the spending of welfare recipients. We persist in our war on drugs despite a century of failure. The Rudd government's Preventative Health Task Force in 2009 even proposed regulating the portion size of restaurant servings. That same government wanted to censor the internet with a mandatory filter to protect us from extreme sexual content. So, let me get some throat clearing, though, out of the way. A lot of people don't like the word, the phrase, nanny state. I've read academic papers dismissing it as an easy phrase in the same tradition as health Nazi, 
conjuring up unfairly Big Brother and George Orwell. I've read claims in newspapers that the phrase is part of a gendered narrative to attack the Gillard government as, quote, big butch bitches. I'm glad I got that out right. So I don't want you today, though, to get too caught up in the connotations of the phrase nanny state. So I'm going to talk about the nanny state interchangeably with its formal description used by philosophers and economists and ethicists, paternalism, which, of course, if you think about it, is also a gendered word, but it's also, it's the one that scholars use, so it must be okay. What do we mean by paternalism? Lots of things get bundled up as nanny state, as I'm sure you've seen, but I want to be specific. The philosopher John Kleinig formally defines paternalism as a situation in which X acts to diminish Y's freedom to the end that Y's good may be secured. I'll spell that out simpler for you. That is, an outside person, say the government, prevents you from doing something you want to do for your own benefit. Let's call X Jack. Let's call Y Jill. When Jack prevents Jill from harming another person, that's not paternalism. When Jack prevents Jill from harming herself, that is paternalism. Oh, yes, in this story, Jack is the Minister for Health. <laughs> the nanny state, such as it is, is an approach to government where paternalism is the norm rather than the exception where politicians, policymakers, bureaucrats, public health activists and Jack seek to limit freedom for our own benefit. I'm going to make a few arguments today against the nanny state. The first one is practical. Does Jack really know what is in Jill's best interest? This is harder to answer than it might seem. The second argument I'm going to make is philosophical. What is Jill's best interest? The third one and the most important one, though, is ethical. What right does Jack have to restrict Jill's freedom, even if he does know what Jill's best interest in is? As this suggests, underpinning the nanny state debate is a much deeper and more important debate about the relationship between the state and the citizen, the limits or otherwise of democratic government, and how we should think about our fellow Australians. Fundamentally, my question is this. If we don't think people are capable of making decisions about what they eat and drink, then why do we think they are capable of voting? Or let me reverse it. We believe, everyone in this room, as Democrats, that people have the right to choose their vote unimpeded by any higher authority. This is a fundamental liberty. It's the most important decision we make as citizens. It can have very real consequences for other people. Yet, we believe it is an absolute moral right we have. We would be extremely offended if someone presumed to override our political choice. Then why aren't we similarly offended when we are told what we can and cannot do with our own bodies? The widespread acceptance of paternalism is, in my view, a leading indicator of a broader anti-democratic ethos which is harming our democracy. I'll return to that. Let me throw in one last caveat. What I'm not going to do today is try to argue about whether nanny state policies work. It's obvious that if you apply enough pressure, governments can change the behaviour of their citizens. If you raise taxes on fatty foods enough, people will consume less of them. People respond to incentives. 
But sometimes people respond to incentives in very strange ways. For instance, some studies have found that calorie labeling at, uh, labeling at fast food restaurants have actually encouraged people to consume unhealthier food as those people use the labels to identify the most calories they could buy for their dollar. <laughs> the system works. Now, of course, nobody suggests that these calorie labels are some great constraint on our freedom. They're known as soft paternalism, and they're less objectionable because of that. But this example underlines why some of even the most benign-sounding regulations designed to help us from ourselves can have some very unfortunate consequences, at least from the perspective of people who want calorie counts to encourage healthy eating. But today I want you to see the nanny state not as a collection of diverse policies, but as an approach to government and legislation that limits our choices for our own good. The basic arguments for the nanny state will be fairly familiar to you. They're certainly very persuasive and they're widely shared. They're intuitive, they accord with our own personal experiences. It is simply this, we do not always make uh, the best decisions. We do not always know what is best for us. We drink too much, we eat too much, we make mistakes. We buy things we don't want, we regret our actions. Many of these mistakes are predictable. As we grow older, we learn about our own frailties. I eat too much. Thank you for being polite about that. And I can tell you exactly what foods I'm most susceptible to overeating. In the last decade or so, these intuitive observations have been given a firm intellectual foundation through the field of behavioural economics. Behavioural economics looks at the specific cognitive biases and errors that make us make irrational decisions. For instance, we underestimate the future consequences of our actions, we employ wishful thinking, we can be swayed by evocative imagery or language, we stereotype, we discount information, and we focus on information that confirms our beliefs. We are awful at calculating risk, we are fantastic at rationalising our own behaviour. It's been long understood in alcohol research, for instance, that people underreport how much alcohol they consume. This isn't because they're deliberately lying, it's because they're discounting how much they drink. Other errors, other men mental errors we make are caused by a lack of information. We might not know what we're doing is bad for us. We might underestimate the health risks of our own behaviour. Some of these errors are very predictable. Paternalism and the nanny state tries to fix them. Where there's a lack of information, the government can step in and provide that information. Where we make systemically biased decisions, the government can step in to nudge those decisions towards better ones, or even prevent those decisions being made in the first place. Here's my first problem with this line of reasoning. It's true that we all suffer from cognitive errors. Some of those are predictable, but so do the bureaucrats and politicians who might correct those errors. There's an economist called Harold Demsetz, and he spoke of the nirvana fallacy. It's easy to identify problems in society. It's also easy to imagine solutions to those problems if, and only if, you also imagine that those solutions can be implemented by a government that is benevolent, neutral, all-knowing, apolitical and all-powerful. 
To try to illustrate this point, another economist, Gordon Tullock, used to tell a story of a Roman emperor judging a singing competition. In this competition, there were two entrants. The first sung their song. It wasn't great. It was off-key. Some of the words were a bit blurred. But the emperor immediately called the competition to a halt and declared victory for the second singer, as they couldn't be worse. I trust you see the emperor's error here. The grass is always greener on the other side. But no perfect alternative to personal choice exists. Governments are not benevolent, politically neutral, all-knowing and all-powerful. Governments are made of people. I know that's very shocking to hear. Some of those people are politicians. Some of them are bureaucrats. They have flaws, cognitive and behavioural. Some of those flaws are predictable. And those flaws should make us think twice about the desirability of the nanny state. Let me briefly take you through a couple of those flaws because I think they're important. We humans have the tendency to overact, overreact in the face of risk. This is known as action bias. It's particularly true when we see someone else who has a problem, who doesn't have the urge to help a loved one, even if we're not totally sure what that loved one needs. Action bias is a basic human trait. Applied to government, though, action bias means that politicians and bureaucrats will favour intervention, even irrational intervention. As a politician, of course, not acting brings very few political rewards, but there are many political rewards for bold statements that you have a plan to tackle some social problem. Action bias is why the federal government passes around 7,000 pages of legislation every single year. It's why no press conference can go by without a announceable, one of the worst words in the English language. And it's why politicians seem to derive more benefit from proposing legislation than actually solving problems. A second cognitive bias is called motivated reasoning. Here we rationalise evidence in order to make that evidence conform to our own beliefs. We all do this, there's no point uh, pretending we don't, so do our political and bureaucratic betters. They have preferences about how the world should be, well-formed or not, and they seek out evidence to support those preferences. A third cognitive error is known as the focusing illusion. Social problems are complicated with many overlapping causes, but the focusing illusion encourages us to obsess about single factors that we can manipulate and dismiss or downplay the importance of those factors we cannot. The last cognitive error I'll mention common to government actors is the illusion of competence. <laughs> this is one of the most widely attested psychological phenomenons in people in positions of power or authority. Overconfidence in their own abilities. Now, I don't mean this as an attack on public servants. They have, we have all the exact same flaws. Public servants and politicians are exactly as motivated by selfishness and selflessness as everyone else. They are as informed as everyone else. Where they differ is that the decisions that they make are explicitly made on behalf of others. And in the case of nanny state policies, they make decisions in order to impose their own idea of what's good on us. But how do they know what is good? How do they know that their decision-making is superior 
to the people those decisions will affect. Jeremy Bentham put it this way, it is a standing topic of complaint that a man knows too little of himself. Be it so, but why is it so certain that the legislator must know more? The, the philosopher Sarah Conley tries to answer this in her book Against Autonomy. She argues that the fact there is a distance between the paternalist and the citizen means that the paternalist is able to make more clear-eyed decisions on our behalf. The argument goes like this. We as citizens are likely to be blinded by our emotions and desires when we're sitting opposite a lovely, unhealthy slice of cake. The paternalist, however, looking on from afar, has unclouded faculties and can make better decisions about whether to consume that cake. But that distance between the paternalist and the citizen has its own challenges. Hence my second objection, the philosophical one. How do we know what is in someone's own good? This might seem like quite a simple question to answer. We'd all rather be healthy. We'd all like to live long lives. But then we'd all also like to eat the cake. We'd like to skip the gym. Most of us prefer television to chin-ups. Life is about trade-offs, and those trade-offs aren't binary. We all place different weights on health and hedonism. There is no right answer. I should go to the gym more, but I'd also like to spend more time with my family and indulge in my favourite foods. <coughs> Smoking, drinking, gambling, overindulging. These things all bring pleasure. They also all bring benefits as well as they bring costs. The case for abstaining from these pleasures is not clear-cut. It is not a slam dunk. Paternalists cannot assume that their own preferences, for instance, prioritising health over hedonism, are shared by the rest of the population. We all have a different taste for risk. This makes the paternalist job a lot more complicated. Because the choice they have to make, or because the, sorry, the question they have to face is not how to ensure people make healthy choices. We might not want to make healthy choices. Rather, they have to divine what our choices would be if we were not subject to all those cognitive errors. If we, they, if we weren't hopelessly distorted by our weak wills, if we weren't overconfident, if we weren't ignorant, if we weren't time inconsistent. In other words, would you still eat the cake if you weren't cake crazy? In their influential book, Nudge, Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler try to deal with this objection. Sunstein and Thaler define good paternalism as influencing choices to make better off, quote, as judged by themselves. The trick here for them is to ask people whether their decisions are good in retrospect. But it's not totally clear to me why our retrospective preferences are superior to our current ones. Who says our future selves have a veto over the choices we make right now? After all, our future self is as irrational as we are. Not all regret is rational. We, on the other hand, we often give ourselves credit for things we had a little hand in. Surveying this thicket of conceptual problems, the philosopher Daniel Hausman concludes, there are a few good alternatives to relying on personal preferences or individual judgment of expected benefits. Simply put, Jack has no better way of assessing what Jill prefers than simply observing 
what she prefers. <laughs> the emperor should not assume that the second singer is better than the first. My final argument today, though, is the ethical one. Here I want to draw a parallel between our freedom to choose in the political sphere and our freedom to choose in the commercial or consumption sphere. If we believe in moral autonomy in one domain, the absolute right to choose who to vote for, why do we not believe in moral autonomy in the other, the absolute right to choose what we do with our bodies? In my book, Liberty, Equality and Democracy, which you should all buy, I'll just pause for a moment to let that settle. In the book, I argue that democracy is more than a system of voting or a way to affect the peaceful changing of political leaders. It's more about, it's, it's about more than contestable elections, a free press or accountable government, or even about sausage sizzles. The heart of democracy, in my view, is the belief that we are all fundamentally equal with an equal right to social participation. Hence, we have an equal say in who leads the government. But underpinning even that is an assumption that we are all capable of having that say. Hence, my claim that the nanny state is undemocratic. It violates a fundamental democratic proposition that we are all capable of making choices on our own behalf in the voting booth, as well as at the supermarket. Now, I'm not the first person to make this claim. Critics of democracy have historically been critics of human rationality across the board. Plato's Republic is one of the most important anti-democratic works of philosophy in the Western canon. In the Republic, he describes a hypothetical personification of democratic man, describes it in this way, someone who sometimes drinks heavily while listening to the flute, at other times drinks only water and is on a diet. Sometimes he goes in for physical training, at other times he's idle and neglects everything. Sometimes he even preoccupies himself with what he takes to be philosophy. Plato continues, he often engages in politics, leaping up from his seat and saying or doing whatever comes to his mind. If he happens to admire soldiers, he's carried in that direction if moneymakers in that one. Notice two things about that quote. First, Plato's Democrat is deeply irrational. He is a rabble of unclear desires. He acts against his own self-interest. He is rich with all those cognitive biases identified by modern scholars. The second thing to notice is Plato's disdain for the democratic man. He drinks either too much or too little. Sometimes he's active and sometimes he's lazy. He even, and this is the horrifying part, has opinions about politics and philosophy. We're so used to reading condemnations of the habits, capabilities, and interests of our fellow citizens. It's nice to feel superior to others, but that feeling is a deeply undemocratic one. And when we presume to use the power of the state to change or manipulate the habits of our fellow citizens, we are being both patronizing and oppressive. I began this talk with an observation that much gets thrown into the nanny state pile that does not meet the strict definition of paternalism. 
Well, there are some other policies which are rarely described as nanny state, but are, in my view, particularly pernicious paternalistic policies. The war on drugs is one. Criminalising drug use shows us how, when taken to its logical extreme, policies which are purportedly to help people can be deeply damaging to those very same people. Drug criminalisation, after all, punishes people for nothing but the choices they make about their own bodies. The second is income management. Income management provides that welfare money can only be spent on approved items. Right now, income management is mainly applied to Indigenous Australians, but there are pilots testing it across the country on Indigenous and non-Indigenous people alike. Income management is a deeply illiberal paternalism that targets Australia's most vulnerable people. And rather than discouraging welfare dependency, it actually encourages that dependency, treating welfare recipients not as fellow citizens, but as incompetence. Income management is, in my view, a neat encapsulation of the way paternalism is undermining the basic moral equality of all citizens at the heart of our democratic project. And it is one of my explanations for why we are living through what is widely seen as a crisis of democracy. The Lowy Institute poll found that an astonishing 35% of Australians do not agree with Winston Churchill's quip that democracy is preferable to any other system of government. Among 18 to 29-year-olds, that figure is even higher. 51% of Australians, young adult Australians, disagree with Churchill. But no wonder. They have been taught for years that their fellow citizens are incapable of making basic decisions about their own lives. No wonder young Australians are starting to doubt that those otherwise idiotic citizens have the capacity to vote which is, after all, one of the most complicated information-intensive choices we all face. But I'd like to dwell on the Churchill quip for a moment, because it's a revealing one. Churchill said, and this was his quote in its entirety, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. He made this claim in a parliamentary debate in November 1947. Churchill, as you know, had fought Hitler and was turning his mind to Stalin. But the anti-democracy he was thinking of in that debate wasn't the anti-democracy of fascism or communism. It was the, to uh, the technocratic socialism of Clement Attlee, his parliamentary opponent and now prime minister, who was busy nationalising British industries. Pitted against democracy, Churchill saw the Labour Party's, quote, supermen and super planners playing the angel and making the masses of people do what they think is good for them. In other words, Churchill saw that, that paternalism was anti-democratic, a violation of the democratic idea that we are all morally sovereign. The nanny state gets a lot of things wrong. It is based on a misconception that bureaucrats are unbiased and better informed than citizens. It assumes that people have true preferences unknown to them, but which can be necessarily it can be nevertheless discerned by outsiders, and it is a limit on personal freedom of choice. But most importantly, it is undemocratic. The nanny state treats citizens as if they are incapable of decision-making in their own interests, 
and proposes to override that decision-making to compensate. Fundamentally, Jack has no right to rule over Jill. Thank you very much. We're going to try something here today um, while we're just getting warmed up here. If there, were, there was a lot in that, there's different ways we can go in the conversation. We'd like to bring you into it. But can you just take a minute or so and in the people, the group near you or around you, just have a bit of a chat, see if there's a question that comes out and, and then we'll get those questions aired in the, in the audience. So we'll give you a minute and a half, a couple of minutes. Just, if you're on your own, find someone to have a chat with and come up with something about what your reaction was. That's <laughs> cool. That's it? That's good. This is good, it just gets people a little animated. I'll just give them 30 seconds more. We might just wrap up now. <laughs> this is good. <laughs> All right, if we could have your attention now, please. This is good. We don't need to do questions. We'll just continue the conversation. <laughs> um, this is a bit of a worry. This yeah, is a so, so, look, there are microphones... <laughs> There's up there, there's one down here. If you'd like to um, come to the microphone, keep your question short. There's a, I've got some questions, but I'd love to, to take yours first up. Can you keep your questions short? Let us know who you are. And, um... and uh, thank you for your talk, Chris. But uh, I just think there's an element of this whole issue that you haven't focused on, and that is, I think, a lot of the actions that institutions take uh, that create the United State is to minimise their legal liability. I mean, when I was a kid, if I fell off a swing in a playground, I didn't look for somebody to, to sue. But now, either me or my parents could readily find a lawyer yeah. who would mount our case for us. Look, look that's, an absolute, that's a very important thing. And that's why a lot of um, people talk about, uh, particularly in the United States, they talk about tort reform because it's such a litigious society. Um, but we often talk about, uh, sociologists particularly talk about the idea that we now live in a risk society. So it doesn't entirely come from the government. It doesn't entirely come from the political system. We're actually, um, as a society, we may feel less tolerant of risk than we used to. We might be, as a society, overweighing distant risk as opposed to um, worrying about things that, that happen in the... the um, uh, that happen more more regularly. So, so one of the examples is um, is terrorism is a good example of that. Terrorism is a real threat. The terrorist threat is a very real threat. But there are also other threats that are more common that that. Um, that, that harm more people. But we obsess about sort of far out risks rather than much closer closer risks. So I think we we have a broader sociological change. 
um, we're, we're less tolerant of those sorts of things than we used to, and I'm not entirely sure that's, that's particularly healthy. Mm. Um, I think we go to question, uh, to microphone two, and then we'll come back to you, sir, at uh, number one. Hi there. Um, <clears throat> quick question that uh, I absolutely agree that um, having that sort of paternalism over the decisions made by other people is, is quite distasteful and unfortunate, but how would you apply uh, or, or sort of take this thought towards things like regulating for the environment or on behalf of things that don't have a voice? Oh, sure. Um, uh, look, there's, it, it doesn't fit... Uh, regulating on the environment does not at all fit that definition of paternalism which I gave. Um, there's nobody on any side of the political spectrum, even um, as close to my anarchist friends as they get, that wouldn't say there is a role for government to um, fix what economists call externalities. If somebody is harming something else, then, um, then, then we need to fix that. That doesn't, of course, explain... Uh, doesn't answer the question of what you do in the case of environmental regulation. And, uh, and a more pressing... Um, uh, question in, in the context of the nanny state is what do you do with people who are not capable of making decisions for themselves and we don't think are, for instance, children? So what do you do to protect children because we don't believe that they are morally autonomous adults, we don't give them the vote, um, and I don't have a, a, a serious objection to that. I just want us to be very clear when we regulate or when we propose to control the choices of adults who we trust as autonomous individuals in other spheres of life, why do we not apply the same reasoning to their, their other decisions? But, but, but nothing, as I've said, sort of rules out environmental regulation, health and safety, industrial relations. Those are entirely other debates that we, that we can talk about. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Um, I, I work in obesity prevention, and uh, one of the things we've found when we've asked people what they want is uh, very high support for things like controlling advertising of junk food to children or the use of the nag factor in supermarket aisles to sell treats to kids, things like that. So I guess my question to you is, if people elect a government to take action on their behalf for things they can't actually control themselves, or indeed to control an externality like bankrupting the health system, is that a nanny state, or is that simply a way of them exerting their individual choice? Um, uh, it's still a nanny state, absolutely. Um, uh, in the same way that if you... that you can have a tyranny of the majority. So no one would um, uh, suggest that it makes it less of a nanny state if 50 plus 1% of the population vote for... Um, uh, vote to ban redheads or something like that, um, uh, which would obviously be objectionable. Um, I think that we... <laughs> for me, not. specifically. <laughs> Half of you going, yeah, fair Only enough. Only very annoying right uh, <laughs> <laughs> If the people want it. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, but, no, no, I, I, I do object to the idea that um, the government regulates our own personal preferences. I understand that... Um, I have children myself and I don't want them to nag me um, uh, about advertising, but I think that's a matter of parental decision-making. I don't think that we should be trying to um, uh, ban advertising. I don't think we should be um, uh, manipulating where supermarkets put things on their shelves, as been proposed. Um, I think that's a um, restriction on adult freedom as much as it is on, um, uh, on, on, on economic freedom. Um, when it comes down to it, I think that um, parents have to protect their own kids themselves. 
Yeah, um, oh, my name is Jeff. What do you say to the question that your fundamental premise is wrong? <laughs> that, well, then I'm out. Well, OK. That the purpose of the nanny state is not to protect you from you, it's to protect us from you and the consequences mm -hmm. of your yep. mistakes. Okay. <laughs> sure. So the, so the previous gentleman um, raised this obliquely as well. So um, one of the strongest arguments and one of the smartest arguments made by um, uh, supporters of the nanny state in Australia is um, we pay for the consequences of your health mistakes. So if you overeat, then eventually you will be at the emergency department um, where we will all have to pay for... Um, that's the sort of thing you're getting at? or Yeah, fantastic, OK. Um, I find this a really strange argument for a couple of reasons. First of all, it seems much more a reflection on publicly funded healthcare systems than anything else. Are we genuinely saying that we have set up a publicly funded healthcare system that is incapable of offering health and freedom of choice at the same time? Are we saying that because we socialise the healthcare system, we can no longer have the freedom to choose, make decisions about our own health? I, I, I worry that, we're, uh, that, that that is a big argument and that is something that other people are raising. More fundamentally, though, we can actually solve this problem in other ways that involve us not losing our freedom of choice. So, for instance, you can involve people's, uh, you, you people's uh, decision-making much closer into healthcare costs. We could deal with, um, uh, we could uh, change the regulations that govern health insurance. You could even, and I know this is a horrifying idea, you could even introduce a price signal into healthcare in order to deal with um, the idea that there are externalities. No, because all you've done is you've just turned into a different form of nanny state. You're saying, I'm going to make other consequences of your decisions, okay, I'm making, and that, it's, it's exactly the same thing, either you are going to be, <coughs> citizens are going to be regulated by the group, or they're not going to be regulated by the group, and if they're going to be regulated by the group, that's what democracy is all about, arguably. They're going to be regulated by themselves. So even in this story that I'm telling, um, you want people to be more involved in their own decisions. You want them to choose their own risks. They are going to regulate those risks themselves. The government is not. Um, the idea that we all make decisions about our health is not the nanny state. The idea that we can freely contract with a health insurance provider is not the nanny state. When I talk about paternalism, I mean the government is preventing us from making choices ourselves. The um, fact that you might decide not to have a piece of cake is not a nanny state. It is you taking responsibility for yourself. Just to pick up on that, though, that, that the, the logic of, um, say, people like Amiata Sen, who says that that requires a level of education and good health and basic conditions so people can actually make wise choices, that's the missing bit. It does. It, and, and we need to work on that. And we also need to ensure that there is information about healthcare health choices available to people, but um, uh, what I'm concerned with and what, I, what the argument I've tried to bring today is, um, why, do not, why don't we apply that to other areas of political engagement? When we treat people like incompetence, why are we not doing the same for democracy? Now, you might not, you might not share my presumption that everybody has an absolute right to decide 
who they vote for, has absolute moral autonomy in the political sphere. If you do not share that presumption, then I don't have an argument against the nanny state that you will, you will agree with. But if you do share that presumption, if you do think people are capable of making choices in the political sphere, then I believe that you should apply that same principle to the commercial sphere. Okay, there's, lo there's lots in that. We'll, take some, we'll go to the microphone too, and then we'll come back to one. Thanks. Um, I kind of think of Australia as a trade-off. Like, I think we give up some of our freedom in order so that we have a lot of the safety nets that other countries don't have. Like, in the US, I think you probably might have more freedom, and that's, like, kind of the idea behind it. Although, like, what, whether it's that transparent, I'm not sure. But in, like... The consequence of that is that if you don't have health insurance, you haven't paid for something specifically, you could be dead in the street the next morning. Whereas in Australia, if you, the result of you not having as much freedom is that people have more money towards taxes because they think, oh, well, everyone else is more controlled. So they put more money into taxes. People can have Medicare and they can have, you'll be helped like in a hospital and also there's like welfare set up for people and that's not available in a lot of countries, not to the extent that it is in Australia. Look, um, I, I full, fully support a, a safety net welfare system and the United States isn't quite like that because they do have um, uh, emergency health, health services that are available um, and the United States healthcare system is a deeply broken healthcare system, unfortunately, in, in part because of decisions that were made back going back all the way to the Second World War. But this doesn't... Uh, that's not the nanny state in my view. That doesn't meet the strict definition of paternalism um, insofar as it doesn't prevent your freedom for your own good. But if you can imagine, I don't think people put money in for people... Like, we are giving money to other people, basically. That's what we do as taxpayers, and that's why we pay such high taxes. And if you're going to put that much money in, you want to know that it's not going to waste. And so if you... If so many people are thinking, I don't want that money to go to waste, there's going to be a lot of limitations... Yeah, and which is one of the problems where you... Um, the idea that we are building a state that's larger and larger with more power requires that we have less and less freedom. So one of the um, uh, implications, I think, out of the paternalism argument I raised in the talk, which is income management. So income management, I think many people here would agree, income management is deeply paternalistic. It treats welfare recipients as if they are incompetent. The, the, reason that we have, the reason that we have income management is because of exactly that feeling that, well, I don't want my, my welfare money, to, or the money I'm putting into the tax system, to be wasted by welfare recipients on drugs or alcohol or um, fatty food or, or just anything, anything wasteful like that. But what it does is it, it really patronises people who are on welfare. It really seriously limits their freedom and it limits the freedom of the most vulnerable people in the country, particularly because it was first rolled out on, among Indigenous Australians. But so was it anywhere else there wouldn't even be a welfare system at all? Like, it wouldn't even be limited, it wouldn't be restricted, there would be no be. welfare system. No money would go in and there'd be no money for anything. So oh, although look, this look, is an nanny yeah. state and they're telling you how to spend your money, like, there's a difference between money and no money. It's not about limitations. It's like, either you've been given them the money or you say, no, no one wants to pay for you to have drugs, so you're getting no money at all. Look, if, if your choice is between the status quo... <laughs> if your choice is between the status quo and no welfare, I'll take the status quo. But, that's but I think that you could be... Okay. Um, I, I think that we could be less paternalistic to people who are at the 
bottom rung of the socioeconomic ladder. That's all. Well, just to round off that point, we keep coming back to the action bias that you referred to and the assumption of competence, and, um, but also overlooking the very important investment in early stage education so that you... Because at the moment we're dealing with consequences of, of massive yeah. issues. Look, so I, I think it was all that all or nothing... Yeah, look, look, and we want to make sure that Australians are most capable of assessing risks themselves. We want to make sure that we have a really high-quality education system. We want to make sure that early childhood is, um, is, is well-resourced and not the, the regulatory basket case that it seems to be as a mm. person with a young child, a couple of young children, um, if I remember. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> just one? Oh, no, two. Hold on. <laughs> um, <laughs> they were there a minute ago. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, and, and it's very important to do that, yeah. and we want to make sure that Australians are as capable of dealing mm. with the complexities of the world as possible, but I want us, when we decide that they are not capable, to understand what the implications are mm. of that decision. Thanks for your question up there. Um, we'll go to microphone one and then come back up. Okay. Um, so, basically, my question is, if we were to take the, we'll coin the term nanny state morality, then what kind of uh, morality do you think preceded it? Assuming, obviously, there were far more oppressive moralities that pre preceded this, but what do you think preceded that? And how do you think we can rebuild that? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, uh, the nanny state morality actually... Um, it, what I see as the nanny state now is part of a long-term tradition in political philosophy which um, uh, of paternalism. So the wowsers that I was talking about at the start of the 20th century were themselves part of an earlier tradition of paternalism. That tradition of paternalism was very class-based, so the idea that you would have an aristocratic um, upper class in control of the machinery of state that looked after first citizens and even earlier than that, um, the people that they, um, the people who work their land and serfs. so forth. The serfs, um, uh, for example. Now, I, I see that as part of a long tradition. I think we've advanced in a lot of ways. I think we are more respectful of individual choice and obviously we're much less class-based than we used to. I, I think that we've made some great strides. We don't base our paternalism on... Um, any notion of essential elitism. We don't base it on any notion of the sacred. We don't base it on any notion of um, uh, what religion tells us to do and so forth. We've replaced that with a concept of risk and a concept of um, health risk, particularly. It's, it's a rational system of numbers. It's either economics or calories. It's a technocratic system, yeah. And one of the things that we have as a society is that we've moved into this idea that you can... Um, as technocrats, we can change and shape society in a way that will give a, get us closer to the perfect society. I would prefer us to respect the idea that we all have a domain in which we can make our own decisions about our own lives, as opposed to push questions onto a coercive government to, um, uh, to, to make those decisions for us. Can I just suggest that... The, 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 fun, the fault in, the, in your, all your premises is the assumption that individuals are right and individuals have any reason to be listened to. Like, we come back from a communal morality. We come from community, <laughs> and community you make the right decision because, yep. well, your decision affects everybody. It doesn't matter about you. 
Now we live in a world where it's all about you and you're meant to make the right decision and you have to pay your taxes and you have to listen to somebody. Don't you think that maybe if we stopped saying you're almighty mm. and you can make the right decision and your vote matters, that people would start thinking less about themselves and more about others? Sure. Um, <laughs> the individual versus the common good. Look, I, w- I would agree with that if the community wasn't made of people too. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's put it this way, and I'll put it in even... I'll, I'll recast your question in an even more derogatory way. Um, <laughs> Um, uh, the community is not an abstract thing. When we talk about what the community does, we're talking about what the government does on our behalf. The person in charge of the government is Tony Abbott. Tony Abbott finally makes the decisions about what the Abbott government does. Um, uh, Mike Baird makes it in New South Wales. Daniel Andrews makes it where I live. Um, Fundamentally, these are people. They make decisions. They say they're on our behalf, but I don't think our um, system of representative democracy is as adequately adequately accountable as it should be. When we are talking about who regulates us, we mean specific people. We don't mean the community. We mean specific people in government, and they have as many of those individual problems as we do. Thank you. Hi. I'm a a mother of an 18-month-old son, and I go to Coles. And I'm not a big fan of cooking all the time, and I'd like to be able to purchase things that are healthy for him. I go to the shop. I go to the frozen aisle. I have one choice in Coles of specifically marketed children's food. And then I think, oh, great, this looks so healthy. Know this, know that. And I buy each of one of each of all of them. Then I go home and I look at the ingredients. I find that I give him meatballs with two teaspoons of sugar per serve. And I find I have all these outrageous ingredients in what is marketed as health food. Now you're talking about the citizens being able to make a choice. I'm a mother. I do a lot of busy things in my life. I don't want to go to the supermarket and then have to weigh up all these decisions every time I go there. I want a government that targets the corporations and their responsibility to ensure that if they market things to us and tell us how much you need them, they actually are providing the health food that they are saying they are. So is this then, are we a nanny state if then we expect that those corporations do this? Question. Thank you for the question. The government's actually already doing what um, uh, paternalist theory would suggest it should do in that case, which is require that the firms give lists of ingredients and so forth. And then there are the, the health choices on the back as well, so that shows you how much sodium and carbohydrates and all that sort of thing are. It takes me to go through the supermarket to find health food for my son yeah. because I, don't, I am too busy to cook all the time. I understand, and, and, um, uh, but the government is already doing all the things that it should do under that argument. I understand that some, some claims are made that um, seem uh, unrealistic. So, so in, in that example, there's um, uh, something says it's health food and it's got two tablespoons or teaspoons of sugar per serving. And I understand that sounds unrealistic. And if that constitutes fraud, then the ACCC should be involved in that, but so far that hasn't been the case. And what the government has done is required those firms to tell you exactly how healthy they are in excruciating detail so that if someone 
is less worried about sugar, more worried about fat content or more worried about something else, everybody can get that information. So there is an information problem there, absolutely, when you buy frozen food. There's an information asymmetry where you don't know what's in that product, but the government's actually stepped in to, to, to remedy that information asymmetry already. Well, and well they have, except they've got all the, the health star warnings, yeah. but they again, hidden sugars. But mm. how can you correlate as though I would buy a product like that? Right. It's my free choice to do that. But then how should I vote if I'm choosing to do... If, if I'm in a position where I end up having to make these choices in an unhealthy environment and I make unhealthy choices, then I shouldn't be able to vote on account of that. No, I'm not taking away your vote. Um. No, I know, I understand. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I, I think we'll move on now. And at the, the last session we heard about the huge amount of funding that went into lobbying to shape those guidelines. Uh, which is something we haven't actually yeah. got and into now. So, I'll, yeah. I'll briefly address that because that is one of the problems that we have. So when we decide that the government needs to regulate something for us, we're not deciding that a omnipotent and benevolent government is going to regulate something for us. We're deciding that a government full of people is going to do that. We're deciding that Tony Abbott or Kevin Rudd or Julia Gillard or their health ministers or the bureaucrats that work for them or the regulators that um, they delegate power to are going to do that for them. Now, those are deeply flawed people. They are deeply flawed institutions and they are susceptible to lobbying. They are susceptible to cognitive errors. They are susceptible to simple mistakes. So what role within that of, of things, um, mechanisms such such as citizens' juries, some of the, the mechanisms that New Democracy Foundation and those kind of groups are, are okay. working on now to give people uh, more tangible input of... Look, uh, in, in my view, we should have more citizens' engagement. We should have more plebiscites. Um, we should have more, um, uh, not necessarily specifically just gay marriage, but we should have plebiscites on a lot of different things. If we're going to go down that path, we should involve the citizens in more questions, we should involve them in more debates. But fundamentally, what we're going to find is anytime you refer power up to the government, anytime you refer power up to the state, that state is going to have its own costs. It's going to impose its own errors. It's going to make its own mistakes. It's going to be a honeypot for lobbyists and corruption um, and for just genuinely mm. bad people to, um, uh, to, to, to take uh, power and money away from us. I think we should be trying to devolve as much stuff down to the citizens themselves, to individuals, to make our own decisions about what we do with our own lives. Okay, next question here, number one. Thanks. Hi. I think your argument is a very convenient academic or philosophical argument, but there's a lot of kind of practicalities and economic stuff that's actually not addressed in there. So what I'm really interested to understand from you is where do you think this works in your ideal non-nanny state environment where people are making collaborative community decisions? Like where does it work? Mm, I actually don't think it's practical. Great question. Where does it work? Where does it work? It works in, in masses of our individual choices all the time. So we are not... Can we just name specific communities or countries? Like not, again, a, a theoretical argument, but where does it work? <laughs> no, look, it's not communities or countries that's specific. And I'm not saying that there is this great non-nanny state 
government out there that we should all be like. Um, I'm not saying that we should be Somalia with no government. I'm not even saying that we should be the United States because some of the strongest nanny state, um, uh, uh, nanny state regulations come out of the United States. What I'm saying is that we should treat our choices with much more respect. I'm not saying that there's an ideal model that we should move towards. I think, or, or there's, a, a, there's a world out there, there's a country that I would prefer. Australia is one of the most free. Australia is certainly one of the richest. Australia is one of the best countries in the world. I want us to be more free than we are today. So I, I understand your frustration that, that I haven't got some grand specific practical model. I haven't got some specific country that's much better than us. But I want to make marginal changes to Australian society that respects individual rights more than they do right now. All right, so we've, we're running out of time. Thank you very much for the question and the answer. Uh, we'll go there and then we're up to the, the top. If you could keep it tight yeah. and your so answer. I'm going to come to your defence, hopefully, here. <laughs> um, <laughs> this guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Find one man. I think, I think we're all forgetting that we're in possibly the most interesting, incredible, fantastic time in the history of the world. And the reason for that is, is because we have something that nobody else previous to us, so to answer, like, there was nobody else previous to us that had the network that we have now, and that's called individual choices based on individual information that we didn't previously have. Mm -hmm. So before, you know, cocaine was good when you had your tooth removed, or tobacco was okay to have, asbestos was marketed as fake snow that you could put around your trees. But we know now that we have access to information and we have access to something on an individual basis that no previous generation mm -hmm. had. That is what I'm hoping to get across is something that I, per I think in your argument that you can use more often is, is we now have something that you, know, you, you don't have to go home and open up a package of fish sticks to figure out what's in your fish sticks. You literally pull out a phone and you can find information. But my question is to you, so I 100% I agree everything you're doing because we have this unique ability. When it comes to vaccinations, what happens when preventative disease is now not my choice? My choice is to yep. take action. But what, what happens at that point? Now, look, vaccinations is actually a um, simple one. It's third-party harm. We, have, uh, we need to encourage herd immunity. Um, uh, I don't have a serious problem with no, uh, anything like that. Okay. Um, Number two. Number two, and then we might just get time to go to our last patient man. Thank you. <laughs> Yes. Uh, I just have a small issue with your model where you imagine the main power brokers in this scenario are the individuals and then the government, and the government does less, the individuals have more freedom, the government does more, the individuals have less freedom. What is missing from your model is a huge role and power, for, um, sorry, the power of some huge multinational companies. Okay. And I'm thinking about the food industry yeah. and, and fast food marketing please. to children. Yeah. And just, you have a big bully in the playground there. And as individuals and as parents, our power to fight that is limited. And just to give you an example. We of, need a question, please, because sorry. we've got hardly any time left. Okay, Thanks. sorry. My example was. Um, <laughs> Okay, I'm going to take that as a, qu a comment and I'll go to gentleman number one. Sorry. Thank you. Um, I, I no, I'm going to number one. Thanks. 
My name's Aidan. I'm, uh, I'm 28, I live in Sydney, I live in a big share house. I'm uh, renting with a whole bunch of friends at the moment. Um, my question to you is, are you equally vehemently opposed to the state subsidising behaviours and patterns and choices, consumer choices, that we perceive as being particularly virtuous? Um, in particular, I'm thinking about the family home. Um, for example, my grandmother, um, she lives in a so three or four bedroom house. <laughs> it's, it's, yes, but it's about, it's about a subsidy. Um, and we, I basically have to pay her pension as a taxpayer. Yep. And yet uh, she gets this, the pension, um, even though she lives in a house, which I'll never be able to afford right. to own as a younger person's generation. Should we maintain that subsidy I, I, on virtuous behaviour? I'm opposed to subsidising virtuous behaviour. Obviously, housing is a big debate. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, can you keep your question... Sorry. At the end, and then we'll wrap up. advertising to children, I feel that a lot of things... Would you characterise limits on advertising junk food as part of the nanny state? Because I often hear yeah. it characterised as that by the junk food companies. Thank you. Yes, I would, um, uh, because I think that it's the parents' role to make decisions about the child's health as much as possible, and I have, uh, as, as I remembered, two children, um, uh, and, you know, I don't like them nagging, I don't like advertisements for, um, uh, for, for chocolate and so on and so forth, but I have more control over those advertisements than I ever have, and fundamentally I have to teach them to make responsible decisions, not hide them away from potential influences. Um, thank you very much. We've run out of time. Um, fantastic questions. Really good discussion. Haven't quite resolved. No, we haven't the fixed it. Spectrum of um, choice. Uh... <laughs> and I'm reminded that you you also talked about in the US um, that the plain packaging of uh, the opaque packaging of cigarettes is is well, allowed it, it, under it, the First Amendment. Well, so it, uh, my understanding, and, and I, it's yep. been a while since I read this, but you know, graphic warnings on cigarette packets. Um, uh, in the United States, the First Amendment is such an incredibly strong defence of freedom of speech that that is, um, uh, that is actually, would be, is seen as a violation of First Amendment yeah. rights, which is, anyway, it's an interesting, Just an interesting little, little thing. There yeah. you go. So take Thank that home. Thank you very much. You. Have a good afternoon. Thanks, Chris. Thank you.